the most surprising thing I learned at Surprisingly Awesome was, oh, it was like a total shocker to me that in the Circle of Fifths episode to have revealed to us that there was a partial Circle of Fifths in our theme song. Hey guys, it's me, Rachel Ward from this show, Surprisingly Awesome. I have come to you to confess that we are a little bit past the deadline that we set and promised you guys to bring you new episodes, and we're sorry about that. But I'm here right now to share some fun facts with you from the team at Surprisingly Awesome that we have learned during our little hiatus. So, number one fact. I knew about Fahrenheit because I'm an American, and I knew about Celsius because I'm an American who's been trying to learn Celsius since I was, like, in second grade. And I kind of knew about Kelvin, but I did not know that there are all of these other ways of describing temperature. So here's a list of other temperature systems. And if you are looking for a New Year's resolution, maybe you could just decide to start using one of these. There is Rankin, Delisle, Newton, Réameur, and Romer. I'm personally going to be measuring weather in Romer for the rest of the year. Okay, fact number two is that the golden brushtail possum just exists. It is the most beautiful animal I've ever seen. I would suggest, nay, urge you to Google golden brushtail possum. Um, and this is a possum, not an opossum. They're actually two different things. An opossum is a North American mammal, whereas a possum is an Australian marsupial. I have one more fact for you, and it is that I am moving on to a new project at Gimlet, so I'm going to be retiring from Surprisingly Awesome. I had a lot of fun working with everyone on this show, especially the people you don't hear from very much, like our editor Annie Rose and Kalila Holt and Christine Driscoll and Andrew Dunn. But my biggest thank you goes out to you guys who've been listening to the show. Since I'm retiring, that also means we're on the host hunt, so we're going to be taking a little bit longer to get back to our publishing schedule, but uh, we will be back before you know it. And in the meantime, we don't want to leave you hanging. So we've got a taste of something that we think is surprisingly awesome. It's a new Gimlet show. It's called Twice Removed, and it's all about family history and genealogy and the connections between us. So we're going to play you the first part of an episode with Ted Allen. You know him from the Food Network and Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and all sorts of other stuff. He's just like a media maven. It's a really fascinating journey through TED and American history. So if you like what you hear and you want to listen to more of Twice Removed, you can go download it wherever you get your podcasts. Don't worry, at least we all are together. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm AJ Jacobs, and this is Twice Removed, the show that proves we are, in fact, 
one big family. Right now, I have two people in this building, in separate studios. What they do not realize is that they're related. They're family. One of them, our mystery relative, will be hidden away until the end of the episode. The other is sitting right here with me. He's our guest. Go ahead and introduce yourself. My name is Ted Allen. I'm the host of Chopped and Chopped Jr. on the Food Network. And for those who haven't seen the show, Ted, Chopped is a cooking competition show. A bunch of chefs are given mystery ingredients, and then they have to prepare a dish in some insane amount of time, like 20 minutes. Yes. Four chefs, three courses, only one chance to win. Good enough. We've been doing that for about seven and a half years. To my astonishment, we've made about 450 episodes of that show. Wow. That's a, that's a lot of food. That's a lot of food, and some of it's good, uh, <laughs> and some of it's not. Some of you might know Ted as the food and wine expert on Queer Eye for the Straight Guy back in the early 2000s. You've won two James Beard Awards, dined with some of the best chefs in the world. To sum it up, you like food. Yes, yes. But if I'm not mistaken, growing up, food was not exactly a high art in your home. You were born and raised in Ohio with roots in the Deep South. So what was food like for you as a kid? My dad would take a can of salmon. You can get salmon in a can if you didn't know that. Uh, It still has bones in it, but they get soft enough that you can actually just mash them up and eat them. It's so nasty. He would dump canned salmon into a bowl, squirt ketchup on it, mash it into a paste with a fork, and eat it on saltine crackers. Have you ever heard of that? I have never heard of that, but it sound- have you tried it recently? Does it take you back like Proust's Madeleine? I can taste it like it was yesterday, and I loved it. Food is such a powerful trigger of memory. For some reason, it's just one of the things that, that you remember best about people when they're gone. I can make banana pudding that tastes exactly like my grandmother's banana puddings, and it just transports me. So, salmon and ketchup, banana pudding. Any other special meals that you remember from your childhood? My mom had a friend named Dee, who I remember at dinner parties she threw with individual beef wellingtons, which was the thing at the time. And, And I'm sure it was from Julia Child, or at least inspired by her, if not straight from one of her cookbooks. Did you watch uh, Julie Child growing up? I remember it, yeah. Uh, I, I remember a black and white TV in the kitchen with rabbit ears on it and, and that voice. And how's your Julia Child impression? <clears throat> well, you must never, never cut the lettuce. You must tear the... It's not very good. Um, <laughs> I probably learned as much... I mean, uh, then, then, of course, I remember the Saturday Night Live impersonations of her um, and Dan Aykroyd with the Bassomatic. Yeah, a lot of Julia Child impressions are impressions of... Dan Aykroyd doing. <laughs> That's really probably fun. what I just did. <laughs> Ma- mangling it. All right, Ted. Here's how Twice Removed works. We've spent the last several months doing research, talking to historians and distant relatives, finding people related to you. So, Ted, here's a chart. And on the far left side, that's you. And on the far right side is your mystery relative. Their name is covered up, as you can see, because they're a mystery. All right. In between the two of you, there are 80 family members, all connected by blood or marriage. We're going to make our way straight through this chain of relatives, one relative to the next, to the next, to the next, all the way to number 81. And that's your mystery relative. So 
Are there any family mysteries that you're hoping we'll uncover? I would like to think that we come from a family of innkeepers with fabulous pubs that serve, you know, delightfully English things like grouse uh, and, and make wonderful ales. And of course, everybody would love to know that they had a relative in the House of Lords or something. But I think if that ever happened in the Allen family history, somebody became a bad seed somewhere along the line because <laughs> there, you know, there are a lot of stories in my family, not of bad behavior, but of just rough luck. Uh, but I eagerly await the learning of blacksmiths and longshoremen and roustabouts and interesting characters. I hope you find them. <laughs> I will be very grateful if you do. We're going to look for some roustabouts, some carnies, perhaps. Carnies. Now that I could see. <laughs> <laughs> we were, uh, we're not a fancy lot. Now today, Ted, we're going to stop at seven people in between you and your mystery relative, and we're going to tell their stories. Some are big stories, some are small stories, but they all have one thing in common. Food. Your family members are a window into the food of the past. We've got a rifle-toting barista, we've got an 18th century celebrity diet icon, and despite your claims to not being from a fancy lot, we've managed to find ourselves a lord. No kidding. Yeah, well, sort of. That's cool. Yeah, we didn't, we actually had no idea what a lord was. I don't know what a roustabout is, and I said that <laughs> earlier, so. So we're going to find out together. All right. And at the end of the show, after we've made our way to the end of this chain, we're going to bring your mystery relative into the studio for a family reunion like no other. Are you excited? Can't wait. All right, let's do it. Okay, Ted, for our first stop today, we are taking to the field of battle. We're traveling to the American South for some culinary improvisation. If you look at this map, we're going to go four steps away from you, past your father, past his mother, past her father, and we land on Thomas Andrew Byrd. That's your great-great-grandfather. He was a soldier for the Confederate Army. That's the one whose 8x10 picture was in my grandma and grandpa's house. Gotcha. Has, has to have been. What did the photo look like? It was a full-length photo. He was wearing the uniform, looking, glowering, as people did in photos, holding his rifle, if I'm not mistaken. I don't even know whether he survived the war. Well, we, have, we can tell you. Oh, cool. So, Ted, it turns out there's this really amazing resource about your family. It's an obscure book that chronicles the lives of your ancestors. There's only one copy in New York. So we went and found it. Here we are in the Milstein Division of the New York Public Library, surrounded by thousands of obscure books. And we've got one of the most obscure right here in front of us, Bird History and Related Families of Averett, Calloway, Chansey, and Goff by Tara Bird Averett, Enterprise, Alabama. This is what we've been looking for. Now, the first thing I should say is that this book is massive. That's a good thud. I thought you'd been shot. <laughs> that was the actual thud. Mm. Now, Ted, this book is more than 900 pages. It's basically a scrapbook on steroids, and there are newspaper clippings about your family going back centuries. Well, I'm flabbergasted. I had no idea about that. <laughs> I wonder if my mom knows. Let me take a picture of that. So this book 
this massive tome was compiled by a distant relative of yours named Tara Bird Averett. And amidst the hundreds of birds, hundreds of pages, on page 542, we found lots of stuff about your great-great-grandfather. Thomas. Right. There are letters from people who remember Thomas and even old newspaper articles where he was interviewed. And here's what we learned. We know Thomas grew up on your family's ancestral farm, which was built in 1813. It was a big farm filled with cows and pigs, which were sometimes eaten by alligators, as happened in 19th century Alabama. That still happens. <laughs> Does it? Not to my family. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> we have pictures of him. This is him as an older man. This is at age 86, sitting next to your great-great-grandmother, Katie. He looks like fun, doesn't he? <laughs> Yeah. Look, how would you describe that for people? He's got a big, bushy, white, droopy mustache and a, and a pronounced scowl. And here's some more pictures. This might be the picture that you had in your... In my grandparents' house. Yes. Is that the one you recognize? Yes, that's the one. And look, is, was he decorated? Looks like he's got some badges on him. Well, we're going to get to it. Oh, boy. Okay. Okay, Ted. Come along with me to 1861. Thomas has just gotten word that Alabama is joining the Confederate war effort. About 120,000 men joined the fight from Alabama. Thomas fought on the front lines for two of the war's four years. Wow. At the Battle of Noonday Creek, about a year before the end of the Civil War, Thomas was charging the Union Army in Georgia. He said, Five bullets cut through my clothes without even grazing my skin. And I had about decided I would just go straddle the Yankee cannon. And at that moment, a mini ball, as they called bullets back then, hit him in the right leg and sent him tumbling to the ground. His buddies had to go drag him out of the line of fire. And all the while, he's yelling, make it hot, which we think is slang for get your asses in gear. Now, Ted, since food is such a big part of your life, as we traced your family history, we couldn't help but wonder about your ancestors' meals, what they would have cooked or eaten or drank. And when we dug into Thomas's life, we found a story of real ingenuity, and it's organic. Right at the start of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln announced a naval blockade. All ports in the American South were essentially shut down. Nothing could get in or out. And the one thing Confederate soldiers missed, almost more than anything else, more than bullets, more than rifles, was coffee. I was going to guess whiskey. <laughs> they sure. couldn't get coffee. Well, wow. And it was clear the soldiers couldn't just skip a cup and get on with their day. A warm, bitter drink did a huge amount for morale. In fact, at Antietam, there's this monument to William McKinley, and it commemorates the moment that he braved enemy gunfire to bring his fellow Union soldiers a hot round of coffee. So I would I imagine that the scarcity of coffee drove them to make to come up with coffee substitutes. Exactly. Soldiers like your great-great-grandfather Thomas came up with other things that you could dry out, grind up, and pour water over to get a hot coffee-like beverage. And there were lots of these substitutes. Peas, cotton seeds, parched corn. Some people literally used tree bark. And one of the most popular recipes was for okra, 
coffee. Ooh. Yes. Mr. Archer Griffith of Alabama gives us the following directions for preparing okra seed as a substitute for coffee. This recipe is from the Southern Banner of Athens, Georgia, February 11, 1863. He expresses himself as highly pleased with the beverage. Parch over a good fire and stir well until it is dark brown. Then take off the fire. Put the same quantity of seed in the coffee pot as you would coffee, boil well, and settle as coffee. Wow. Doesn't really sound that appetizing. Well, we've got good news for you. You are going to be able to know firsthand whether this is a good... Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> cool. So, uh, yeah, we went ahead and decided to make some Confederate coffee of our own. Outstanding. I am going to pour us the Confederate coffee. We have okra grounds. It smells terrible. <laughs> really, It really does smell terrible. <laughs> Look at that. Okay, here we go. It tastes a lot better than smells. Well, you're very brave for drinking it not just once, but several sips. Well, it's really not half bad. Look at that. We got the thumbs up from Ted Allen for substitute coffee. I mean, I'm, I'm calling it plausible. I'm not calling it okay, delicious. Okay, thumbs slightly up, it's sideways. Better, it's much. It's not bad. It's much, much better than I would have thought. So you are ready to open this Brooklyn artisanal cafe of okra coffee. AJ, we are, you and I are both one idea away from never having to work again. <laughs> This could be it. <laughs> All right, Ted. Now that you're hydrated, we're moving on to our next story, your next relative, and a couple of steps closer to your mystery relative who is waiting patiently to meet you. All right. Our next stop on your family chain is just two generations back from Thomas, about 50 years earlier. 1800 or so. That's when Thomas's grandfather, your fourth great-grandfather, settled down in Alabama. Thomas Andrews was his name, and Thomas the Elder was a farmer. He farmed sugarcane, corn, cotton, and he was a slave owner. Is this something your family talked about when you were growing up? I had never, no one had ever told me that anybody in my family had been a slaveholder. I mean, the the number one question that I have is, is there any information about the slaves? Do we know who any of those folks are? Very little. We know there were six families. We know that they lived in shacks on the property. We know that the foreman was a slave named Ned. They called him Cross-Eyed Ned. And that's pretty much the extent. Cross-Eyed Ned. I, I guess I never really connected myself that much to it, to slavery, to the, the, the legacy of discrimination. Learning that we had slaveholders in our past makes you question, and I'm a descendant of people who grew up in the Confederacy. A corrupt, bankrupt, oppressive, horrifying, brutal institution that tore a country in half. And to think that my ancestors played a part in that is painful. We don't know much about the people your ancestors enslaved. But we do know that enslaved people influenced Southern culture in lots of ways. 
and we called up the historian Jessica B. Harris to talk about one of them, how enslaved Africans changed American kitchens. Well, who was cooking? The African hand in the pot of the South is what makes Southern food distinctive. Harris is a food historian and one of the foremost experts on Southern cooking. She actually helped design the restaurant at the new National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C. She's also a huge fan of one of the ingredients we've been talking about today. I like okra just about any way you can make it. I like it, you know, just steamed okra. I eat okra pods if they're really small and delicate. I eat them raw. The history of Southern cooking is wrapped up in the history of slavery. Okra, the ingredient in that coffee you're drinking, it's a big part of that history. Harris says it's a vegetable that actually made its way to the U.S. from Africa during the slave trade. Was it the slaves who brought it over, do you know, or was it the, the people? Slaves didn't get a chance to pack. Let's start there. Because if you had a chance to pack, you'd get the heck out of Dodge. Nowadays, okra and gumbo are inextricably linked with Southern cooking. But it all started with the enslaved cooks preparing food for their white captors. And it wasn't just okra that came into Southern cooking this way. The enslaved cooks left all sorts of techniques behind. Frying in deep oil, one of those techniques that is really well done in the South. I think nobody really needs to ask where the colonel got his recipe. (laughs) Black-eyed peas, I think people might suspect, came from the African continent. But watermelon, I think that's an unexpected one. It is such a part of, generally speaking, an American summer that most people don't think of it as something that came from the African continent. By the early 1800s, all sorts of dishes created by enslaved chefs started making their way into white family cookbooks. And the recipes started spreading throughout the South. And persist to this day, all over the country. It's, it's remarkable how, how that became what is now considered Southern cooking. Right. And with all of this, you can't help but think of how those Confederate soldiers were using okra to make their coffee. So what do you make of the fact that the enslavers were using the products of the enslaved's homeland ultimately to fight to maintain slavery? That's called America. There are Southerners today who eat fried okra and love fried okra and have no idea of its origins. We don't, we don't tell our full stories. And we never have. <laughs> 